Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest on this Currents episode is Greg Henry Kiss. Greg is professor of psychology at James Madison University. Hi, Jim. Happy to be here. Hey, good to have you back on the show, Greg. Thanks so much. Yeah, Greg is the author of A New Unified Theory of Psychology, and he's also developed the associated tree of knowledge that we discussed in episode 59. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Greg's idea called the fifth joint point. And I got to throw a joke in here. Uh, when When I first read and heard about the fifth joint point, I said, oh, that reminds me of a Pink Floyd concert I went to in 1973. Yeah, yeah, by about the halftime, I think we we're about at our at our fifth joint. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the good old days, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, so and you know, at the highest level, the fifth joint point, as I was able to extract it from the book, uh, is essentially the very big picture, the uh, uh, history of the universe could be summarized in four steps as matter, life, mind, culture, and metaculture. Maybe you could uh, tell us how you got to metaculture and maybe do a little brief recap, uh, you know, recapitulation yep. of your tree of knowledge. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah. And as I mentioned uh, in uh, a blog I did with John Verveke on transcendence consciousness in 1997, the picture of the tree of knowledge emerged. Um, and it was actually as I was enjoying a joint at the time. Uh, so I had a flash. Uh, the tree of knowledge does get. So the joint points do have a number of different references, and that could be uh, a one fun association of reference. Um, but so let's, yeah, let's just track it out. Um, so the tree of knowledge uh, is a map of cosmic evolution uh, that maps both reality and our scientific knowledge of it. Um, and it maps reality into four different uh, dimensions or, uh, or a behavioral complexity or planes of existence. Uh, I use those terms interchangeably. It starts w- with our modern cosmological picture uh, of the universe starting, say, 13.7 billion years ago. There is some more modern debate about exactly that age, but um, we'll go with that for now. And, and existing a, in a state, uh, we'll call it here a pure energy singularity. Uh, then we get a Big Bang inflationary period um, in which the argument is, is that this gives rise then to the dimension of matter. So uh, in physics, matter is, uh, you know, something that t- takes up space time and has uh, has mass. Uh, we're going to use the dimension of matter uh, to be the dimension of three dimensions of space, uh, the dimension of time and the energy matter interactions that emerge out of Big Bang. Uh, and so then we can then trace this at the level of the development of particles uh, into atoms, uh, atoms then cluster into groups, uh, giving rise to stars and galaxy clusters. Uh, also inside of stars, we get increasingly complex atoms. And ultimately, uh, in terms of the evolution of the material universe, uh, say over a 10 billion year period, uh, if we follow our little history, we get to the planet Earth uh, 4 billion years ago, where you get these complicated chemical uh actions and reactions happening, uh, and then either seeded by an astro 
asteroid of some level or emerging here on Earth, we get the emergence of the jump into the second dimension of complexity called life. Um, and we can talk a lot about what is it that actually gives rise to these steps. Um, but the fundamental point about the tree of knowledge says that life is an emergent, complex, adaptive plane of existence. So whereas the material dimension is largely complicated, um, we can think about life uh, as self-organizing, dynamic, complex, adaptive systems. Uh, the tree of knowledge makes the point that these are information storage and processing systems, uh, say, with inside the cell. And of course, DNA, RNA uh, as sort of exemplars of that. And they're also cell-to-cell -cell communication systems. Uh, it's this information processing and cell-to-cell -to -cell -to communication that really plays a central role on why life represents a separate, complex, adaptive plane. And I mention that so that we can be clear as when we get up to the fifth joint point, uh, this point about information processing uh, and communication is key. So then you, the, the tree of knowledge follows uh, the trail of evolution into uh, plants and then ultimately animals at the Cambrian explosion. Uh, we see uh, the burst of the animal world. Uh, Tree of Knowledge argues that that's another complex adaptive plane of existence. Uh, why? Because the nervous system yokes cells together uh, to create a centralized information processing system, and animals then engage in animal-to-animal -animal communication patterns. And then we see the dimension in the language of the Tree of Knowledge. Mind is the dimension of animal behavior. Uh, it's also when we get phenomenological consciousness emerging uh, through the development of brains. Uh, and then we trace the evolution of animals. I know we're going pretty fast here, but we want to get to. And then what happens with humans is uh, a new novel kind of communication system, uh, specifically symbolic language uh, that yokes minds together uh, and then allows us to create capital C culture, which are shared systems of justification. Uh, these are the narrative structures uh, that give rise to our belief value systems, our propositional networks, how the hell we make sense out of stuff. And over the last 50,000 years, we've really seen the explosion of the evolution of the culture person plane of existence. That's the fourth dimension. Again, we have a novel information processing communication network. Uh, so each dimension following matter, that's life, mind, and culture, uh, is an emergent dimension of complexity as a function of an information processing communication network. That's what gives rise to its novel uh, uh, properties and behavioral complexity dynamics. So if you follow that line of thinking, um, and you, I knew about six weeks to six months after I uh, sketched out the Tree of Knowledge in 1997, uh, that seeing these patterns results in the conclusion that the 21st century um, may well see uh, the beginning uh, of a whole nother dimension of complexity. Uh, why? Each dimension of complexity is associated with the emergence of an information processing and communication system that are networked together uh, and look around in the 21st, 20th century, uh, we laid out a lot of those parts. Uh, we connected them together with an internet. Uh, and now we're really seeing the emergence of what we might call the digital dimension uh, to at least reference the kind of information storage processing and communication networks. Um, so we're sort of on the cusp of whatever perhaps comes next. So that's one key feature of the fifth joint point is the idea that we're really on the cusp of yet another emerging dimension uh, of, of behavioral complexity or plane of existence. Uh, it's called metaculture just as a reference to that's what's above, beyond, and transcending the dimension beneath it.
Wow. Thank you, Greg. Uh, history of the universe, uh, 13.4 billion uh, years in uh, five minutes. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, I, I work in an area called Game B, uh, which I, I would say is approximately the level of your metaculture as we contemplate what comes next. And I use the phrase, what comes next, all caps, yeah. uh, as the... Uh, I would say an, almost an exact synonym for uh, metaculture. You know, uh, I think both of us have this strong feeling that something is coming, but we can't put our finger exactly on what. Right? And, exactly. Uh, and and game B, uh, there's an enormous amount. I've been I've been tracking. I know that I think you call it the San Diego version. I've been tracking Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger. I learned then from your guys' conversation. Uh, that, you know, game B stuff. And I saw the Brent Weinstein on Rebel Wisdom and your discussion there also, you know, 2013, 2014, the Stanton conferences, um, learned all about that. And of course, I was here, uh, you know, down the road, uh, having my own vision. And there are exactly, there's an enormous amount of synergy. Uh, and, and so for me, one of the things that I realized um, is that the emergence of the digital is going to fundamentally change the rules of the game. Uh, so what Jordan Hall called the blue church, I just called the old institutional uh, in inertia and infrastructure that wasn't going to be able to handle uh, the accelerating dynamic complexity uh, that gives that is a function of how AI and the Internet and other kinds of things are just going to change the rule of the game. So I do think I, I was seeing globalization and artificial intelligence and digital communication as creating so many new rules uh, and so many new opportunities that the old infrastructure was not going to be able to be sufficient. And if we didn't upgrade uh, our programming and cultural code, we might find ourselves in, well, a shitload of trouble. Absolutely, and I think that's the other point where we're absolutely uh, in agreement. Uh, we both call it the meta crisis, right? Uh, that's a game B term and it's your term as well. Uh, this is a direct quote from your book. Uh, will the combination of careless stewardship, population explosion, lo local realities clung to as the truth, and resource degradation and depletion end in global conflict and the destruction of culture? Uh, you know, culture has brought us a very long way, right? From uh, you know the very first group of humans out on the savanna in East Africa, two hundred, three hundred thousand years ago, uh, but. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any breaks, right? It just builds more and more and more and more. And particularly when we entered the modern age, you know, people say, when do you believe the modern age uh, happened? I say February 23rd, 1694. Uh, you know, and, mm. what the hell? And I go, that's the invention. That was when the uh, Bank of England was uh, ah. set up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the invention of central banking uh, right. mediated uh, fractional reserve banking. Yep. And I would say that, you know, obviously, a lot of things are come. That's a joke, of course, but it's not entirely a joke. No. There was a lot of uh, science was just being invented in the late 17th century. People like Newton, etc. cetera. Uh, the earliest uh, parts of the Industrial Revolution, people were tinkering, etc. And then you add hyper, or in that case, not yet hyperfinance, but uh, fractional reserve banking finance as uh, basically pouring some lighter fluid on the charcoal and things really took off right around 1700. And I would say that's the world we're in. And it's brought us from a world where most people, most of the time were on the verge of starvation. 50% of children died before the age of uh, five. Uh, human lifespan was 35 years, maybe on average uh, to the world we have today, which is much, much better However, there's no breaks. Yep. You know, we're going to 
either cook ourselves by burning all the fossil fuels and raising the temperature to the point where uh, there'll be a, ma a massive die-off or one of our technologies will escape from us. It could be a nanotechnology. It could be AI. It could be CRISPR. Uh, there's just so many of these that, uh, you know, basically what, you know, we, what we haven't done is developed kind of a meta view about our culture, right? Exactly. Uh, which, uh, you know, Jordan and Daniel and some of the other great, uh, Game B folks uh, basically say that if we have to catch up uh, to something like wisdom uh, yeah. that's equal to our uh, capacity. Exactly. Uh, you, know, you know, those who listen to the show know I'm a little bit skeptical of wisdom in some uh, high metaphysical sense, but I think in an operational sense, uh, we need to be able to step above meta, uh, uh, our culture, and and build a, rebuild a new culture uh, that addresses these meta crises. And again, in Game B Talk, we talk about uh, a society that is uh, uh, network centric. So we hit on your idea that the network is key, mm -hmm. self-organizing. Mm -hmm. And we think that may be a key difference rather than so much top down, more yep. self-organizing uh, and uh, and metastable. Yes. Uh, meaning that uh, it won't, you know, no single configuration is likely to be stable for any long period of time. But the the meta culture has got to be able to exist through these meta crises and solve them. And, uh, you know, I throw out the number 500 years, you know, 500 years from now, things will be so goddamn different. I can't say much about it, but, uh, you know, if we don't make it through the next 500 years, then we don't get to, uh, you know, play the game again. And so we got, have to solve these meta crises, uh, uh, over the next, 500 years. Yep. Yeah. That, I, I basically have a complete uh, agreement with that. I, I think that, you know, uh, my frame on that is that, yes, we, this 21st century period is on this cusp of this metacultural transition. Um, the technology is going to be huge. The rules of the game are going to be different. And we do need something akin to wisdom uh, that gives us a meta perspective and enables us to have a meta stable frame of reference uh, to cultivate that transition because it's going to, there's a hell of a lot of difference that's coming. Uh, the question is, if we get too much difference, then we get tip into chaos. Of course, you get too much order on the other side. It's that sweet spot uh, that fosters complex, flexible, adaptive uh, being. And, and that's definitely what I think we need to be doing. All right. Now, your, one of your key tools in your uh, work is what you call a justification system. Uh, and, you, uh, and you say, again, this is a direct quote from chapter nine. I submit that our transcendental purpose is the construction of a new global system of justification that effectively merges wisdom with science and technology in a way that fosters the emergence of a new global age. Maybe you could start out with telling us what is a justification system and then maybe a little bit on you know, how you see this uh, new justification system uh, emerging uh, from this meta crisis and this, uh, you know, this cusp in, uh, in the history of the universe that we talked about earlier. Great. Yeah. One of the central insights of the tree of knowledge actually preceded it um, was what is it that really transformed us from primates into people? Um, and many people will talk to symbolic language and a whole bunch of other things. And I think things like imitation, share, joint attention. I listened to some of the uh, conversations that you were having with Zach Stein. Uh, there were a lot of setups for it, 
Um, but then you get symbolic language. Symbolic language is a radically different kind of form of communication. Other animals have parts of it, uh, but the open symbolic language system that we have. And the insight that I had about symbolic language um, is that it gives once it tips over into propositional meaning statements, uh, as opposed to when we go from uh, antelope there to there are the antelope, um, you create what I call the question answer dialectic uh, and dynamic, um, whereby you can question the truth of a proposition uh, and determine then the extent to which it's justified or not, uh, both in terms of its accuracy and its utility for the purpose. Uh, and you can do this with a pretty low cognitive load. Uh, precocious kids do this all the time. Why are you bald? Why do we eat cookies before dinner? Um, why do we do this, that, and the other? Um, and then you say, that's just the way it is, kid. Okay. Um, but so well, what happens then? Uh, how do people get coordinated together? And the argument is actually we can take this concept of justification. Uh, it's a very fluid and multifaceted concept and realize that essentially what people are trying to do is they're coordinating investment and influence uh, through uh, language-based beliefs and values that legitimize what is and ought to be. In other words, they serve as justifications. And then these justifications are networked into systems of justification that give rise to narrative meaning, sense-making, coordination. And really what we see is the emergence of cultural codes um, can be thought of as the evolution of different kinds of justification systems. Uh, so I would argue that first, uh, hunter-gatherers are uh, engaged in an oral indigenous kind of justification. It has certain kinds of features, face-to-face -face dialogue. It will narrate certain ways. Uh, they'll be probably more animistic. Uh, there's not going to be as much writing and analysis. That comes then next. You see the emergence in the axial age of what I call formal systems of justification. Uh, these are philosophies that are required to manage large-scale civilization. You have experts, priests, uh, uh, philosophers, etc., cetera, uh, that are, have expertise because of the way civilizations organize. We're, of course, much bigger than tribes. Uh, we get writing. Um, we get other systemized forms of technologies like the emergence of money eventually. Um, and all of these are, create macro civilization level systems of justification, uh, what I call the formal systems of justification that emerge to regulate civilization. And then uh, when we get have these formal systems, many of which are dual world, religious, built on tradition, revelation, authority, they get institutionalized in various cultural contexts. Uh, then we get the emergence in Western Europe uh, of modern science uh, and Galileo's the father of modern science. That's a different kind of justification system. And indeed, the entire modernism uh, with liberal democracy, a particular form of industrialized capitalism and the scientific uh, modern scientific way of understanding the universe, that gives rise to uh, modernism, uh, which really transforms, of course, uh, the whole cultural code throughout the globe, gives rise to our first globalized system of justifying, and we see that. But it's also the case from my vantage point that modernism uh, was significantly limited uh, in its capacity to give rise to a holistic uh, meta perspective of justification. Uh, it did a great job of organizing, say, the STEM fields um, but I make the point, well, actually, modern science really breaks down at the level of psychology in terms of its coherence. Um, and one of the things the Tree of Knowledge tries to do is really give you a scientific worldview uh, that solves some of the problems uh, and then looks to merge with the humanities and the wisdom traditions uh, to give rise to a much more conciliant uh, picture of human knowledge. And I believe that that's crucial in understanding the kind of metastable uh, systems that we need uh, to use to guide us. Uh, in this transitionary phase. 
Yeah, it's very good. Very interesting. Uh, now, you mentioned meaning and you referenced, uh, you know, John Verveke earlier. And uh, uh, at least in my world, uh, Verveke is most well known for his 55 hours of videos on the meaning crisis. Yeah. Truthfully, I'm not quite sure what the meaning crisis is. Do you have any sense <laughs> of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's two, uh, to me, there's two different powerful meanings of the word. Um, one is really ever since there have been formal systems, of, and probably even before, but certainly we have documented history, and really he starts uh, with, with the West <coughs> and the Axial Age. Um, so what you get with, once you get questioning humans building justifications, people need to know why. Uh, why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I here? What's the right way to do? These are very almost inevitable questions that people will ask. Uh, and then you'll get more and more sophisticated and different kinds of answers to those questions. Um, and really the history of philosophy and the history of knowledge systems represent people's struggles and attempts uh, to answer them. And we've gone through periods of history um, where the lineup between say, what is happening inside the culture, uh, where the institutional developments are, what is the relationship between other cultures, uh, its knowledge, its technology, aligns reasonably well uh, so that you have uh, the answers provided by the culture uh, aligning with the lifestyle and people have more or less uh, a, you know, a sense of meaning and purpose that's shared by the culture and feels fairly stable in that regard. Um, and then there are other times where there is a profound crisis of meaning meaning that, hey, there, there's a destruction, uh, ancient civilizations uh, devolve, uh, there's a lack of, uh, a sort of a sense of homelessness John talks about. There have been various periods where uh, there's a fundamental breakdown in meaning making. So, so you can track the history of meaning, both in terms of its search of it and periods in which it's sort of flourished and consolidated, other periods in which it's really, uh, people have lost it and felt the chaos of a lack of meaning. And then I think that brings us to our current situation, what I call the acute meaning crisis, um, which I believe is we are seeing a, a system of fragmented pluralism, uh, meaning the state of knowledge that we are in. We're overloaded with information, but our knowledge and wisdom, uh, in part because of the knowledge is so, the information ecology is so poor, there's such fragmented pluralism. We have lost the sense of what is true and good, in my opinion, uh, at least in terms of uh, any kind of coherent grounding. And so I believe that we're facing a modern meaning crisis. Uh, and I think there's a lot of pieces of evidence uh, that would point to that uh, phenomenon. Great. I love that. Good. Uh, Save me 55 hours of watching Verbeke. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I've tried a couple of times, yeah. but uh, uh, one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. Right. Right. Uh, let's dig into that a little bit. This meaning idea, if we think about the world before, say, 1750, mm -hmm. uh, the West was certainly uh, had a meaning uh, that was principally religious. Yep. Right. Right. Uh, you know, it had been going on since, uh, you know, probably the fall of Rome. Yep. where Finally, Christianity uh, finally pushed the paganism aside. Right. Yep. There was still a little bit of paganism left, even in the late Roman Empire. And so we lived in a world that was utterly saturated with uh Abrahamic religion yes. uh, up till 1750 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some of those roots we talked about earlier in the 17th century came together in the Enlightenment. Right. Uh, and the Enlightenment basically said, hmm, well, those are probably just stories somebody you know made up. And they were useful, but uh, they aren't 
metaphysically true. Right. You know, we think about people like Voltaire, uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, uh, you know, folks of that ilk. And then we entered into the Enlightenment age, uh, where uh, in some sense, there was not a replacement, a one for one replacement with Abraham, uh, Abrahamic religion. Rather, there was a sense that humanity was now in charge of its own destiny. Right. Sometimes I refer to the Enlightenment as childhood's end, ripping off the Arthur C. Clarke novel. And uh, that seemed to work for quite a while. Yep. Uh, Although, of course, if we go out and look at the world today, uh, the Enlightenment values never actually pushed the the Abrahamic religious meaning off the stage. Yep. Uh, It made progress, but... Uh, and in some parts of the world, particularly uh, Scandinavia, UK, Netherlands, uh, a relatively small number of people are actually believers in Abrahamic religion. Uh-huh. Uh, but in much of the world, certainly here in our United States, certainly uh, where you and I live, uh, <laughs> yep. Abrahamic religion is still very strong. Amen. Uh, so uh, uh, I guess two part question. One, did the Enlightenment actually have a meaning? which is now uh, breaking up. And uh, how does the uh, residual uh, Abrahamic meaning relate to what's going on? Great. Yeah. So these are foundational questions as far as I'm concerned. So, um, so yes, there's a complete dominance, basically, at least in Europe, of course, this is our, this particular Western lineage, um, Western colonial lineage. You have a complete dominance of Christianity until you get the emergence of, and indeed Galileo is the father of modern science. Um, he hated the metaphysical speculations and wanted as pristine of an analysis of matter in motion as possible and, you know, generates empiricism and really what you see is a transition. Uh, so what is it, Laplace, who tells Napoleon he has no need for the God hypothesis, um, at least that's an anecdote. Um, you get a transition from, you know, and certainly Newton believed that God was instrumental uh, in, in all of this, and you have uh, Rene Descartes and his dualism, uh, but you get an increasing shift over a 100-year, 200-year period, certainly nailed by Darwin, and nailed in terms of it's emphasized, um, when, when we get the evolution of life hooking on to the physical world, you get a fundamental shift in our understanding and the authority of know- knowing, which used to be in the Catholic Church and priests, now gets shifted, uh, certainly by the time of the 19th into the 20th century, who are the authorities on knowledge but scientists, you know, um, and, and the scientific worldview is then shared uh, as the central point of truth um, at least in, and then there's a bracketing of different domains of science versus religion, and their interrelations, I think, are absolutely central to our current meaning crisis. Um, so, you know, kids in my neighborhood, you know, Stuart Straft, okay, you're learning the whole truth of the Bible, right? And then you go to high school, and then your biology teacher mentions, well, actually, you are a primate that evolved, you know, and then the shit can hit the fan, and everyone has to dialogue whether is it okay to learn about the theory of evolution in school. Um, which to me is a great example of how confused we are, uh, because, of course, part of the Enlightenment was to set up the separation of religion, uh, of church and state, so that people could be free to believe what they want. But at the same time, we are going to have a massive crisis of education, to use Zach Stein's term. If we can't educate our children on the most, what I would argue is the most basic principle of science is cosmic evolution. That is, if you're going to have any picture, any scientific conception of the universe, it is that we have emerged 
from the Big Bang over billions of years uh, through a series of complex uh, evolutionary steps. And that's the most fundamental scientific picture. Um, so we have a real challenge between various worldviews to this day. Um, now, at the macro global level, uh, basically, and the and what happened with the liberal, democratic, capitalist, industrial, uh, scientific, modernist way of thinking was that th that became globally dominant. So now science um, and its view really is sort of the shared knowledge system. Now, where I come in is, yes, I'm a, I like Steve Pinker's enlightenment. Now I'm a I'm I'm a naturalist. Uh, I believe uh, that in general, the Enlightenment has been a very good thing. I believe we have seen human progress uh, and all your points about the stat status statistics of kids starving. All of that's unbelievably true and valuable. But it, it's also now we've released a train uh, that I think is headed uh, toward a cliff uh, and it's picking up speed. Uh, and if we don't figure out a way to shift it, we'll go off uh, off the cliff. Uh, and there are lots of different elements uh, to change the direction of, say, the, the Titanic before we hit the iceberg. And, and this is, for me, one of our things is that what we need to do is move from a modernist view of understanding. Uh, and now we're sort of between worlds. We're going to let that modernist view um, evolve, include the key insights of it, and transcend uh, that. And, and in part, that's going to actually be returning to some of the wisdom traditions of old and pulling the the, the good wisdom uh, that was embedded in those traditions and merging them with a scientific worldview and creating a more holistic, consilient, scientific, humanistic uh, way of being in the world. That's what my hope is for the 21st century. Okay. So uh, sounds like though part of, uh, uh, again, uh, it's a very interesting distinction. This uh, science plus plus, let's call it, uh, we see that replacing uh, revealed religion or do we see this as uh, as the two operating in parallel? Because one of the Enlightenment forks, as you point out, was separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. uh, and people forget the Enlightenment was uh, started only 60 or 70 years after the end of the Thirty Years' War, mm -hmm. uh, which was the most horrific war of religion in the history of the West. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as 35% of the population of Central Europe died. It was like way worse than World War One in mm -hmm. terms of... Uh, you know, the catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And so a reaction to that was, well, damn it, uh, we have to be pluralistic about religion, at least the most advanced thinkers. Right. I, lo I love to point people to, I think it's the highest enlightenment document. It's the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom mm -hmm. that was jointly written by Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, yep. and James Madison, the author of the Const U.S. Constitution. And it was uh, written in 1779, finally ratified in like 8, 1783, uh, years before the Bill of Rights. And it was extraordinarily radical where uh, guys like John Locke talked about religious freedom. But frankly, all he was talking about was the different denominations of Protestantism. Right. right, right, right. Uh, Catholics. Hell no. No Catholics. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Madison and Jefferson in this statute, which was enacted into law in Virginia, uh, it, you know, explicitly talked about Hindus and you know, anybody, you know, atheists, anyone, anyone at all. Uh, so there was a radical uh, pluralism that was inserted into the Enlightenment code uh, around that time. And of course, then finally instantiated in the U.S. Uh, First Amendment. Right. So anyway, do we see science plus plus or Enlightenment 2.0 uh, 
finally pushing revealed religion off the stage, or do we see the two are, are going to have to coexist for yeah. a long period of time? Listen, I, I okay, yes, I, I like the term Enlightenment 2.0. Uh, the tree of knowledge is uh, positioned really, and the whole fifth joint point is really uh, situated sort of as a call to an Enlightenment 2.0. Uh, there are many facets to this question, so let me break them down a little bit. Let me actually stay with the Enlightenment because I think. One of my big criticisms of the of the Enlightenment is what I call the Enlightenment gap. And by that, I mean what gave rise to modern science, unbelievably brilliant system of justification that was particularly effective at us mapping the material world and then anchoring life onto that as a concept. Uh, you know, and, and so you actually get STEM and our STEM knowledge systems are actually relatively coherent. Uh, they have language games that people can generally consensually agree on. And we call them the hard sciences because they actually, at least the foundational insights like the periodic table of behavior, I mean, the periodic table of the elements, things like that, they provide uh, a real foundational knowledge base. My critique uh, of the modern science empirical naturalist enterprise, though, is that didn't have the right descriptive metaphysical system so that we could get the right language game when it came to two fundamental issues. One was the relationship between mind and matter, okay, scientifically. How do we, what actually is mind? What's the proper uh, language for mind? How do we do it? Think about it scientifically relative to other systems of justification. And what actually is science uh, and scientific knowledge relative to, say, old older social pragmatic systems of justification or religious systems, uh, you know. So the tree of knowledge actually uh, attempts to resolve uh, some of the key inadequacies of our modernist understanding. It offers a language system that both solves the mind-matter language game problem. Uh, in other words, it gives you a full deck of terms and concepts to coherently map uh, Knower-known relationships, subjective-objective perspectives, uh, the nature of consciousness, the nature of self-consciousness. And it also, through its concept of systems of justification, delineates the kind of justification system modern science is and how it exists in relationship to culture, which is the broad uh, holistic term for justification systems writ large. So it gives us a frame to understand and resolve the Enlightenment gap. And with a holistic scientific worldview as a way to describe and explain the unfolding wave of behavioral complexity across the various levels and dimensions, we can now contextualize that in a holistic way and then turn and link that up with foundational values, okay, moral values. Uh, and I think most people would agree that science, at least in its proper, you know, classic modern science matter in motion way, is pretty silent on the issue of value, um, or at least it struggles enormously with what ought to be. And in order to have a holistic system of justification, we have to yoke is and ought together so that we can see what do we value. Uh, and the tree of knowledge and certainly the fifth joint point uh, concept is that we will have a scientific worldview that is up to the task of describing things like the metaphysics of mind, uh, what is human knowledge, things like that, which the current system doesn't do, and then connect it to broad value systems. Uh, when you do that from a metacultural view, you look across, say, all of the religious traditions. If you think about them as abstract practical codes, um, you see a huge number of really, well, maybe not even a huge number, but you see a lot of moral, relational, universal values, things like love, freedom, dignity, cultivating well-being, being truthful, uh, 
uh, Ken Wilber, an integral theorist, talks a lot about this and how we used to have sort of a big three of a quest for true beauty and goodness. Um, and part of my vision of wisdom is that we will get the scientific worldview right, and then we'll be able to hook back into questions of goodness and beauty, uh, which really have been sort of religious ultimate concern questions. If you're familiar with Paul Tillich, he talked about the ultimate concern questions. Um, and I think a lot of those wisdom traditions concern those. And I'm interested in building a scientific humanistic uh, worldview uh, that embraces uh, some of those ultimate concern questions, and at least creates an integrated, pluralistic uh, frame of understanding uh, to for us to engage uh, with them. Ah, very, very interesting. Yeah, let's dig into this. This is the heart of the matter, isn't it? Yep. It really is. Uh, you know, uh, I've been working on the mind-matter gap since uh, 2014, mm. uh, or basically... Uh, educated myself on uh, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, mm -hmm. and particularly dug into the scientific study of consciousness. And I actually even wrote a program uh, which simulated a white-tailed deer in an environment that was, I would argue, minimally conscious in a mm. uh, very, very simplistic level. And so uh, this is uh, where I, I sometimes push back when people say, oh, the science, science is limited, you know, uh, et cetera. But I'll get to your point, too, where, where, I, where I now see your point about that, which is uh, when people attack enlightenment and science, I get the sense that they often are attacking a straw man version of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what might have been taught in uh, high school in 1935 or mm. something. <laughs> right. Uh, and. You know, I like to point out that you know, science is open-ended. You know, science is, uh, you know, an attempt to extract regularities, yep. uh, at least provisionally, from the universe, uh, and and goes into greater and greater domains. You know, originally, uh, as you point out, Galileo uh, basically wanted to refute the absurd assertions of Aristotle about motion. Right, mm -hmm. that's all he wanted to do. Right, Aristotle just made up some shit. Uh, and called it physics, that was actually wrong. Uh -huh. And it's amazing to me. It's one of the great uh, examples of human inertia. For 1,800 years, Aristotle's assertions about physics uh, were taken as gospel by everybody. And in reality, it would take him two days to do the experiment to prove they were wrong, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. And Galileo finally did it. And uh, and there we are. Right. Uh, and the other one that's even bigger uh, was uh, Aristotle said some more intelligent things about biology than he did about physics. Mm -hmm. uh, but evolution was on the table since Aristotle until the time of Darwin, uh, a 2000 year gap. Mm. Uh, any smart person could have thought hard and deep and said, oh, fuck, yeah, it has to all be evolution uh, via, uh, you know, differential reproduction. And, you know, as uh, uh, the various people, who was it, Thomas, uh, the, anyway, uh, one of the uh, uh, Darwin's bulldog famously said, slapped his forehead and said, how stupid of me right. not to have thought of that, right? Huxley, uh, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thomas Huxley, exactly, exactly. Because, uh, you know, when you think about it, it has to be true, right? I mean, it's almost mathematically, it has to be true. And it was sitting on the table since Aristotle. But I guess, back, you know, turning back to the point, modern science isn't just Newton. Newton plus Darwin, right? right. And a simplistic Darwin. Uh, we had relativity, yep. uh, which adds all kinds of spooky, strange stuff that we're still working our way through. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the quantum phenomena. Amen. Uh, where, you know, we're literally, uh, you could see some, you know, some loose, and I, I, it pisses me off when I hear people from the uh, spiritual world <laughs> overstate uh, quantum stuff, but it is true. 
that electron from your left elbow does occasionally visit Alpha Centauri, all right? So weird shit's going on in the quantum uh, uh, range. Uh, and then the chaos complexity evolution uh, provides some very serious practical limits to knowledge, yep. right? People that say that science is, you know, hubristic and, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are thinking these, uh, you know, ancient Laplacian type models of the universe where if I could have the position and motion of every uh, particle in the universe, I could predict future history perfectly. Well, no, you can't, yep. right? There's uh, mathematical reasons that ain't never going to happen. And when we expand the uh, scientific toolkit to include deterministic chaos and then complexity, and as you pointed out, a whole new level of, uh, of universal complexity around complex adaptive systems that opens science up way bigger than these straw man attacks. And then finally, or where I started, where the work I've been working on for the last six years is cognitive science, yep. you know, at, at the frontier, uh, really is approaching the point where I would say within the next, certainly the next century, we're actually going to be able to say how mind emerges from brain. Uh -huh. uh, and that will be done within the scientific tradition using scientific tools. Uh -huh. And so at least the first part of your, uh, your, your one, your enlightenment gap, mind from matter, uh, strikes me as, uh, already being solved by science, right? And uh, as we as we know, when people just make shit up, whether it's Aristotle or the church fathers, almost always when we get real knowledge, we find that making shit up was just wrong, right? Right. Uh, Thor does not cause thunder, right? Right. Lightning bolts aren't thrown by Zeus. Uh, you, you know, uh, the uh, the earth goes around the uh, sun, not vice versa. When you make shit up, uh, it's very unlikely to actually be true. Uh, when, or even approximately true, useful. Uh, when science understands something, you know, it's not absolute truth. And you know, you know it's not science when someone tells you, science tells you this is true. Science tells us provisionally and has not yet been falsified uh, that we think this is probably how things work. Uh, so when we get a theory of how mind emerges from brain, from cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, computer science, AI, I think all those will be involved. Uh, we'll be able to answer uh, your first point about mind and matter in a truly scientific fashion. Right. Well, okay. So a couple of points there. It depends. So there's a huge issue of what are we talking about in terms of, uh, okay, there's the question, say, the hard problem of consciousness, all right, uh, about how does the water of the brain give rise to the wine, say, of first-person phenomenological experience? Uh, and and I'm, I'm actually in 100% uh, general agreement with you. I'm a scientist. I'm a naturalist. Okay. Um, I, I do believe that there are good reasons to be uh, agnostic and hopeful about sort of a mystical, holistic, meta reality view of the universe. Um, but that's that's the my mythic uh, perspective on the world, and not my scientific language game. Uh, but I, my, what my issue is, is that. Modernist, what happened with Galileo when he said, oh, that's all bullshit, okay? He created, Galileo created an empiricist language system that actually struggles enormously with, for example, first-person phenomenology, because what he tried to do was he tried to get the first-person knower perspective out of the equation and map it mathematically and experimentally, which was a huge plus. He shifted our epistemology from first-person empiricism to a general third-person empirical view. And that was great because that enabled us uh, to test, to develop experimental, to be self-correcting, all the wonderful things that modern science does. 
But I know from the history of psychology, okay, as they tried to make psychology a science, the way in which the modernist um, system of science and its exterior epistemology was structured, it created a huge freaking language game problem. In fact, uh, John Verveke and I are in the midst of a long, ongoing conversation about the fundamental grammar problem, the problem of grammar to talk about, say, consciousness, mind, first-person experience, self, self-consciousness, all of what the hell these terms mean. And what I point to uh, in terms of the inadequacy of at least a straightforward modernist system is the state of psychology. Psychology is this shitstorm of different vantage points with different language games, and they all compete, and they don't line up. And it's like physics before Newton. You have a pre-paradigmatic cluster. Uh, And what the tree of knowledge actually does is it comes in and gives a conceptual field arrangement to tell you how to define mind and consciousness and self-consciousness properly so that we could actually all develop a shared language game of our terms. Okay. So for example, you talked about, you built a, the deer, right? You, you, what you did, you a little create an, an AI version of a deer that probably, what it probably does is it demonstrates, um, it simulates what's called functional awareness and response, right? Uh, in other words, does it track things that moves its environment and responds accordingly uh, to give some uh, consequence that may be adaptive or adjusting? Am I right about that in terms of what the deer does? Approximately, though, I went a step further and I built a architect, again, very, this thing is exceedingly rudimentary, right. uh, that uh, took the major components of what we believe the brain does. Uh, my, my work is focused very deeply on uh, two things. One is attention, uh, well, three things, attention, and then the uh, the uh, conscious sensor- uh, sensorium, you know, right. i.e. The, the, the movie that we live in, yep. right? And then the linkage to a hierarchy of memory systems. Right. And the one I've added, which uh, amazing, I keep reading it, and it's uh, in this in this literature. And it, of course, there's a few people that talk about it. But to my mind, the most important is episodic memories. Yes. Uh, but there's a whole hierarchy of memories. Sure. And so essentially, I used a uh, I, I took the leading theory, and I, uh, as you point out, uh, psychology is a shit show on most any topic, you can find three or four incompatible theories, right? right. And so I went through and read about attention, working memory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the difference between short-term, long-term memory, episodic memory versus declarative memory. And I just made my own assessment of which of these theories I thought was most likely to be true. And then importantly, and when I finally do write this up, I think this will be a contribution. Uh, I make the point that the ensemble of theories that I collected actually cohere, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the guys who are creating these individual theories of, let's say, working memory, uh, weren't really looking at did it cohere with, uh, you know, a theory of perception, a, a theory of perceptual memory, a theory of episodic memory. Right. And, uh, and so my uh, AI deer has all these things in it. Uh, and I would argue, oh, I may be wrong, and but there are other plenty of scientists in the uh, science of consciousness uh, arena uh, who I think are with me, uh, that when we fully understand this architecture that links attention, uh, procedural memory, declarative memory, episodic memory, working memory, uh, et cetera, we will be very close uh, to explaining the phenomenology of consciousness with no magic at all. Right. Uh, the, uh, the simple, stupid analogy I like to give, uh, and it's kind of, it's a paradox, almost a Zen type uh, cone. Remember those little flip books when we were kids mm-hmm. uh, that looked like a movie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, you flip the thing. And again, the other thing in my model is I use a quantum consciousness. 
uh, not quantum in the physics sense, but quantum in that uh, consciousness is fine grained uh, at about uh, 250 milliseconds mm -hmm. per frame. So think of a book being flipped for four pages per second, yep. essentially. Uh, and that's the, the very first one I happened to have seen one of those flip books. I was in second grade. I still remember it. I was just so taken with it. Was a guy rowing a rowboat across a lake, right? Mm -hmm. And so you flip the book. And so my view of what is conscious, what is first person phenomenological consciousness? The guy rowing the boat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's all it's going to be. I don't believe there's any mystery there. Uh, I'm a Cyrillian at one level, John Searle, mm -hmm. the Berkeley philosopher sure. of consciousness, among other things. Uh, he loves to say uh, that consciousness is a biological process. Yep. There is not one thing. Uh, and he says, think of it as analogous to digestion. Yep. You can't point at you and say, there's your digestion. Rather, digestion is a process that uses various components. And then the rut corollary to Searle's comment about digestion is consciousness is the same and often often has the same end result. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I would say my view and the view of at least some others in the uh, brain and uh, uh, cognitive science field who are looking at consciousness, uh, that we can get to a substrate uh, that will explain where the phenomenolo phenomenology of the subjective experience comes from. Uh, though you are correct, it would be very useful to develop a consistent language, which does not yet exist, to talk very, very carefully uh, about the interrelationship between the substrate and the uh, subjective experience. But it does strike me as somewhat premature uh, to worry over much about that language until we understand the substrate. Right. Well, my vantage point is from a psychologist, the way I came at it, um, you know, I, I was I was tangled up with all of the language problems. And what the tree of knowledge does is it provides you a meta systemic view um, that allows you to then interrelate the theories. And my, that was my first book. My current book is how it provides a descriptive metaphysical system uh, for our terms so that now I can talk about what I mean by behavior. What do I mean by mind? What do I mean by phenomenology? What do I mean by the subjective-objective distinction? Um, and I'm I'm certainly in agreement with you that I believe that uh, phenomenology uh, is a whole brain uh, process, and we will be able to uh, decode it. I like global neuronal workspace. Um, I think information integration is interesting. I love Damasio's work. Um, all of this that we will be able to stack together uh, a particular picture, which we already have. Uh, there, there's definitely a lot uh, to be said. Uh, about it. There are a lot of complexities. One of the complexities I think people fail to appreciate um, that got psychology all tangled up is the differences between functional behavior analysis, uh, neurocognitive architecture like the brain uh, as an information processing system. It metabolizes information, uh, but you can do that, a lot of that like a zombie. You don't need consciousness. Um, what exactly is the tipping point that gives rise to uh, a first-person experience of being. I doubt you would argue that there was anything like to be that deer that you made up, you know? So you have Thomas Nagel's famous point, what's it like to be a bat? Um, well, that's an epistemological gap. We can never look directly at another creature's consciousness. That's This is the subjective-objective uh, dilemma uh, of interior versus exterior, to use Wilbur's distinction. These are huge 
uh, conceptual philosophical problems. It's just a brute fact that you can never stare uh, directly at another first person, another entity's first person experience of being. So that's, that does create some problems, but I think we can box it in. Hell, I argued for a whole unified theory of psychology, which would, by the way, actually, my unified theory of psychology would essentially absorb cognitive science inside of it and organize it um, accordingly. Um, but that, those are all, so I think we're in pretty much agreement uh, in general. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'll uh, go with Searle. You know, Searle is thought to be one of the anti-artificial uh, consciousness or artificial general intelligence people. He actually isn't. His argument is very much more subtle than people give him credit for. Uh, he, you know, again, says consciousness is like digestion and therefore it is intimately linked with our biological being, mm -hmm. right? So in the Nagel sense, you know, what is it like to be a bat or what is it like to be a human or what is it like to be a reptile? And I would say I'm also uh, with those people who argue that type one consciousness uh, goes all the way back at least to reptiles yep. and possibly earlier. Uh, you know, the sense of like the consciousness of a deer or a dog right. being in this movie in the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, goes goes way back there. Uh, but that is a biological substrate. And as Dan Dennett argues, I think quite uh, well, that the zomb the philosophical zombie argument is actually a, uh, a fake one. That uh, for to be an animal that lives in a sensorium means that you will have consciousness. You can't act like a dog and not have a consciousness. It's just the way the biology was developed. At least the, Sur the Cerulean take on the a Dan Dennett argument, there are no philosophical zombies in animals. Uh, it you know, seems to be, I think, a very well-argued point. Now then Cyril uh, does say uh, that, we, that he expects some, that things that are consciousness-like could be developed in machines, but they won't be identical okay. to that which is operating uh, in uh, a biological system. And so I've extended Cyril's argument, taking his earlier uh, comments about digestion. Uh, in the food technology industry and in pharmaceuticals and in organic chemistry, uh, there are devices called digesters that use bacteria, yeast, uh, and such to, uh, say, break down cellulose into its lower level components to be then used in chemical factories. And, uh, and truthfully, uh, uh, a brewery uh, is in a sense a digester that digests starch into sugar and then into alcohol uh, using yeast. Uh, and uh, but those digesters are called digesters and they're analogous to a human digestion system, but they're in no way the same thing. And hence my AI deer uh, is analogous to yep. a human consciousness, but it's not the same thing. And I did not, I've not yet reached the point where I could uh, put in the material substrate to provide a possibility of phenomenological subjectivity. So I would say that all my deer uh, acts kind of like mm -hmm. a actual deer. Uh, I would say definitely I did not build in architectures uh, cloned from my understanding of humans uh, that might give it a phenomenological experience. But as does Searle, I would not rule that out. I would say that uh, once we understand the substrate of uh, phenomenological consciousness, it's not obvious to me at all that uh, such things could not be built you know, in silica. Mm -hmm. And, but again, that's an, it's an, an, an answer question. And it's possible that there is some uh, thing that we haven't, we don't see. Uh, there could be a gap there, but it's not obvious to me that there is such a gap mm -hmm. and that 
uh, you know, come back in a hundred years, it would not shock me at all to find phenomenologically conscious machines. Right. Right. No, I, I, I'm basically totally agree, uh, with you. My, my, my argument comes at this from a slightly different angle, which simply is the metaphysical language systems uh, that modernist science handed us, like, you know, that it's a materialistic uh, modern science actually uh, was deeply problematic relative to the task at hand of that's why a science of consciousness and psychology got had so much trouble. Uh, and we can do a lot better uh, in the language game of science if we upgrade it uh, and use something like the tree of knowledge uh, to carve nature at its joints um, and to give rise to a much clearer mapping of our terms and their reference points in the world. I, I think 100% agree with you. It sounds like we're uh, we're basically on agreement. Uh, I will, uh, though, push back a little bit on something else you said, and then we'll move on to your second point, uh, which is uh, you know the mythological aspect of consciousness. Uh, this is something I run into all the time, particularly in my Game B uh, work, where probably half the people have an integral Ken Wilberian yep. background. And, uh, you know, Ken's stuff is exceedingly useful. I'm starting to dig into it now. If I can actually have him booked to be on this podcast in the fall sometime. Right. And, uh, you know, his four quadrants I find very useful. The levels are useful up to a point. But then he kind of goes off into stuff. I go, all right, that just strikes me as a fucking assertion. You know, yep. Cosmic consciousness, yep. for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if consciousness is per John Searle uh, and Jim Rutt, a biological phenomena emergent from meat that uh, is expensive. It's energetically expensive. It's expensive in genetic material. Uh, it serves a purpose in allowing a dog, a deer, or a human to navigate usefully in the world. There's no reason to think that there ought to be a cosmic com consciousness, uh, nor do, do I see anything that is entailed from a biological view of consciousness that uh, results in something called a witness, which is a kind of, I'm not even quite sure I understand it. I don't know if you, you may have read enough of Wilbur yeah, to understand sure. what his witness is. Yeah, but right. I go, there's no entailment of witnesses. What the hell? This is, just sounds like bullshit somebody made up, no different than uh, divas in uh, later Buddhism or angels in Christianity. Uh, so I would say, uh, you, you did use the word agnostic, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be agnostic. I can't prove there are no cosmic consciousnesses. But I see nothing about the consciousness that we're starting to understand mm -hmm. uh, that would entail any such thing. Right. Right. So so that for me, here's the way I, I, I operate in this. So, um, yeah, I actually do believe that the idea of a witnessing function uh, that emerges as part of the layered uh, phenomenology. So I actually believe uh, you get uh, qualia at the level of pleasure and pain uh, that starts to coordinate the whole movement of an or, of an animal away or towards something. Uh, that's the first uh, elements, and then you get actually a perceptual field uh, that then is actually the flow into episodic memory um, is actually well described as a witnessing function by the time you're up at primates and humans. And actually, a lot of what the meditative um, so there's like what's called a pure consciousness event. Uh, meditators will talk about this, um, whereby essentially the qualia uh, of the experiential qualia of like redness uh, or whatever would be on the screen blends into the screen itself. So all you get is a hereness, nowness, presencing uh, of, of existence. And many meditators across a wide variety of different domains uh, will talk about reaching uh, that state and experience sort of a non-dual 
oneness, uh, the witnessing function becomes all encompassing. It, it tr transforms uh, sort of the experience of being in the world. Uh, and, and there are actually very reliable ways in which people are transformed uh, by psychedelic experiences, by other kinds of elements, where their intuitive sense of their place in the world, their grip that they have about where they are in relationship to the world, um, becomes sh shifts from from a more sort of grounded in one level to become more transcendent. And by that, I mean, there's a there's an expansion of the self, but also a fusion of the self and the world. Uh, there's a sense of peace, a sense of calm, a, a sense of oneness. And there's a huge amount of, of similarities of certain kinds of transcendental uh, transcendental experiences and how people work towards them. And there is something in my estimation uh, to believe that that patterning in the world um, is, well, I'll call it fantastic. And what I mean by that is uh, I don't think that fits really well in the scientific language game. I think that anybody that starts to make you know, strong metaphysical descriptive claims about its nature is off key. And at the same time, I think that uh, all a mystery, a possibility of cosmic consciousness uh, for many people, uh, it makes there's enough evidence uh, for it to make sense for people to be guided by that possibility, to live their lives about that possibility, to seek transcendental experiences. So for me, that kind of spiritual quest meaning making um, is what sort of higher religious aspirations can be and can be very commensurate. Uh, with a scientific worldview. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to actually, I just recently signed up to be a guest on my own podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jared James, uh, who's my producer, he also is also a podcaster. He's going to interview me. And one of the things we're going to get into is my theory of mysticism. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and I actually have a, I think, fairly crisp argument on how the mystical experiences can emerge, to give you the very shorthand version. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, in neuro, cognitive neuroscience, we talk roughly about uh, brain state attractors, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, sure. famous def default uh, mode network when you're uh, daydreaming, yep. uh, uh, unfortunately ruminating in depression, hmm. and also in the lighter stages of meditation. Uh, and then the task mode networks where, you know, give the example where you're for the second time changing the tire on your bicycle, you know, fairly complicated, detailed thing that takes your full attention. I argue basically that there's at least three other uh, whole brain state attractors uh, that represent three stages of deeper and deeper mysticism. And you know, I've done psychedelics. Uh, mm -hmm. I can put myself into a mystical state that turns my ego off for 10 to 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And it is cool and it is good and it is useful and it does help you feel different about the universe. But I believe there's uh, straightforward grounded uh, scientific explanations for them, but I'll leave the details uh, for another day. Let's get to your second big point here. And I think this is, in some sense, the biggest question of all. And this is where I think we're in 100% agreement, uh, which is science, in some sense, has uh, taken too much of the air out of the room, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And science has never claimed, or at least it should not claim, uh, to talk about ought, right? Yep. It goes all the way back to Hume's famous is ought distinction. Yep. And yet you see people doing it, particularly with the social sciences, Absolutely. right? Oh, yeah. You know, certain people misuse evolutionary psychology, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Say, so, oh, yeah, men have, men have this, that, and the other thing. Therefore, the patriarchy is okay, right? Bullshit, right? Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the thing, uh, probably the what comes next or metaculture, one of the most important things is what is 
a well-founded cultural scaffolding that sits outside of science and directs science for the well-being of the evolution of our planet and on into the universe uh, strikes me as of the essence. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and so for me, this is what sort of a, a metacultural ultimate sort of system of justification that resides above the systems of justification. Um, you know, you and I were at that Daniel Gortz meeting, uh, Daniel, uh, you know, Hansi Freinach, aka, or at least half of them, you know, drew out the, from the individual to the family, to the community, to the state, to the nation, to the transnational, all the way up to the global. Okay. And then the question is, well, how do we allow for the pluralism of an individual, of a community, of a state, all nested, and at the same time have some degree of coordination? And is there a global point uh, which would then really sort of transcend into the metacultural? Is there a global point of understanding that we can reference uh, to at least create the kind of global connections that are necessary to have a, if we're going to have a globalized state, it's got to have some degree of coordination. Now, I argue that actually, yes, um, there are sort of transnational into global values uh, when you look broadly uh, at individuals coming together and creating what I call universal moral relational spaces. In other words, the people get together and they dialogue about what's reasonable, what are the core values that people have. Um, nobody, for example, goes around explicitly justifying that they are full of shit and trying to do destructive things simultaneously. I call it false bad justification. Now, people do false bad things, but nobody comes out and says, listen to me, I am completely full of crap. In other words, everything I say is inaccurate. And if you listen to me, your life will be 10 times worse off. <laughs> okay. Nobody just, even Hitler or Mao or nobody justifies those that way. People try to justify by a dialectic of here is what's true, this is a narrative, and here is what ought to be. Um, and we need to figure out, well, what are the themes that give rise to the good life? Uh, and then how do they transcend across uh, individual, family, local culture, national, and then transnational, global? Uh, in my book, and I started then seeking, well, what would be uh, and I argue that there are many, many, what I call, you called it coherent pluralism, which I like. I think if you adopt an integrated pluralism on this, you will see many different kinds of meta values that emerge. Um, so for example, in Christianity, you see agape, the idea of love of the other. Uh, that would be a, a common meta value. I emphasize, the big three that I emphasize um, are dignity, um, which I draw from the United, after World War II, the United Nations got together, developed the United Nations Declaration of Rights. And although people couldn't agree exactly why people had rights, everyone agreed that if we conferred dignity, in other words, value to people, gave them in a fundamental aesthetic value, that's really where the whole thing has to start. So we have to say, hey, human, a, a well-lived life is a good thing and we need to protect it. And each person uh, then is worthy of respect, esteem, and dignity. So that's a foundational value. And I believe it's actually kind of the aesthetic human value. Um, and will, by the way, connect down in, into things like beauty. Um, then I, if you looked at uh, before COVID, you know, it's taken a hit, World Health Organization. But the World Health Organization, as its fundamental mission, was the cultivation of well-being at the biological, psychological, and social levels. And I dove into that construct. Uh, actually, Sam Harris has a book called The Moral Landscape, in which he argues that he yokes the concept of well-being and science together, 
arguing that really science's quest for truth is actually also can be pragmatically interpreted ultimately to feedback to help uh, cultivate well-being of sentient creatures. Um, I then analyze that from the unified uh, concept, the unified theory, and develop what's called the nested model of well-being, which specifies what well-being is, or at least the elements that go into it that uh, that need to be uh, fully understand it. And then finally, there's integrity. Uh, that's honor, honesty, soundness, and truthfulness. Um, and so for me, dignity, well-being, and integrity uh, really kind of correspond to, okay, issues of justice and fairness uh, and protection of those elements. Uh, it also connects to the concept of beauty. Then you have well-being, like just health, happiness, flourishing versus suffering, misery, degradation, and despair. <clears throat> and then uh, which is like a health concern. And then ultimately you have science and truth. Uh, so truth, goodness, and beauty can be cultivated through these value structures. Uh, and that shows you that science is a part of the equation, but it won't be the whole part. And in fact, you know, to the extent that I have a conception of wisdom, uh, it really does is about truth, goodness, and beauty, or the integration of dignity and well-being with integrity. Uh, in fact, that's my byline, be that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. Uh, and I argue that that's a potential, or it's a proposition for uh, this meta-value structure that could guide, globally guide enterprises while also preserving freedom and pluralism and a wide variety of other things that we want to hold on to. I love it. I mean, it's interesting. It's astoundingly parallel to the game B things that we use different languages. I don't think we pulled it together as well as you have. I'm going to think about that and see if there's a way to spin that tagline of yours right into game B. If you don't mind it being stolen, we'll give you some credit for it. No, that's exactly. Well, actually, that's what it was. When I learned about the game B, I mean, I was really taken because I do believe, uh, I believe we're in a late stage capitalism. I believe enlightenment has been great in general, although it certainly warrants its critics. Uh, I probably have a little more sympathy to the postmodern critic than you do, but I also uh, am skeptical of it. But I do believe it's time is now to transcend our knowledge and wisdom systems, including the Enlightenment, reboot an Enlightenment 2.0 that bridges values and science together uh, so we can guide our way into this new digital world, which God only knows what we'll behold. Uh, but we better be grounded into something or else... Uh, uh, the wheels are going to come off this thing and, you know, uh, it may not end up in a happy place at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're almost 100% in agreement. You know, in the Game B world, the platform in which we believe the Game B has to exist, uh, and it's amazing how well these tie together, uh, was, in fact, this was the original insight that Jordan Hall and I had when we met for the first time, had a four-hour insane conversation at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, is that honesty and good faith have to be the center right. uh, of everything. In fact, the, the thing when we both just like, wow, we're on the same page is uh, how could it have come to be that honesty and good faith is a sucker strategy, which <laughs> I would argue that it is in our society right. uh, today, especially playing at the highest level. Yep. And in a society in which honesty and good faith is a sucker strategy is a depraved civilization. Amen. Uh, Amen. And so, and then the next one, this is from my essay, which is probably the closest I've gotten to laying out my thoughts about Game B. And as we talked about earlier, there are various people's thoughts about Game B, but this is mine. It's called A Journey to Game B. It's on Medium. Uh, and I, write, I wrote, Game B should operate such that irrespective of their biological and social endowments, everybody in Game B should be able to live a life of autonomy and dignity. Uh, and I think, again, that ties into your dignity. Uh, I think it implies well-being, though I didn't 
put it in there. I'm going to do it. Uh, but I also added autonomy. Yep. And something about autonomy or freedom, I, the word freedom is unfortunately been hijacked in some ways, but autonomy may be a better way to, uh, to, real, to, to say that the more autonomy we have in our life, the better. Uh, so long as it doesn't conflict with other goals. 100%. Actually, that's embedded. So uh, part of the theory that I developed is called the influence matrix. And it talks about our self-other intuitive value structures, uh, really arguing that we're cultivate craving relational value and social influence. But the process by which we must navigate that is on the dimensions of power, sort of competition, love, cooperation, and fusion, and freedom. How do we navigate our autonomy so we're not uh, controlled or obligated in a way that fundamentally constrains us, uh, overly constrains us relative to other people's interests and needs. So uh, autonomy is embedded in the system as a foundational uh, value If you once you put it into the calculus of relational value and social influence. Well, I think uh, that's a good place to end. This has been an amazingly interesting conversation. Oh, well, fantastic. I appreciate you having me back and I look forward to a future conversations. Sounds good. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.